Michael Begler is showrunner, writer, and executive producer of Perry Mason, which debuted as HBO's most-watched series in nearly two years upon its premiere in June 2020. The critically acclaimed show stars Emmy winner Matthew Rhys, Juliet Rylance, Catherine Waterston, and Hope Davis. In the second season of the Emmy-nominated series, the scion of a powerful oil family is brutally murdered. Power, social justice, immigration, LGBTQ rights, and what it truly means to be guilty are among the issues raised by the series. Begler's previous shows include the Peabody Award-winning The Nick, starring Clive Owen, directed by Steven Soderbergh. Writing producing credits also include the comedy series The Tony Danza Show, The Jeff Foxworthy Show, and the film Big Miracle, starring Drew Barrymore and John Krasinski. Michael Begler, welcome to The Creative Process. Well, thank you for having me. So I binged season two of Perry Mason and the whole atmosphere is beautiful. For those who might not have seen season one, can you just set up where the show left us at season one and how we enter into season two? So by the end of season one, Perry Mason has gone from investigator to full attorney. But here's a guy that did not go to law school, got his way through the bar exam and to help finish off a case with the character of Emily Dotson, who was accused of murdering her child. And that ended in a mistrial. But what it also did was solidify him as now Perry Mason, the attorney, with his team. Della Street, who worked as the assistant in the office, was now going to be more of a partner, if not a full partner, and go off to law school. And Paul Drake, who was working for the LAPD, was now going to be coming on as his investigator. We call it the end of that season is sort of the super friends. They've all come together and they're all going to work together. But when the dust settles and we enter season two, it's not the party that they ended season one on. It's so interesting how that was set up, the transition. You see a lot of transitioning, even within this season with the mm-hmm. Della Street character. And I mean, I don't know if everyone has seen the original Perry Mason, but it's a prequel that really goes into the motivations. I'd seen the original Perry Mason, but I hadn't thought about those depths and his character. Mm-hmm. And you really, with this season, you offer up so many interesting questions that the time period, that's the 30s, America's in the Depression. We've just gone through a lot. And Perry himself, you have the echoes of war and the questions that are so applicable today. And this theme, which goes throughout the season of the illusion of justice, or is it justice for all? Is it representative democracy for all or only for those who have the wealth to afford it? So could you go into a little bit more about some of those themes and how they're obviously just as relevant today? Sort of the unfortunate thing is that when we set out to do this season and look at the history, what you really right away is how little has changed in humanity. And we're not looking at today saying, oh, it'd be great to talk about racism or X, Y, or Z and put it into the 30s. It's really by doing the historic research, you see how all of this stuff existed. So the show is set in 1933, which is actually the worst year of the Depression. But you also have this explosion of wealth in this city. When you look at the, again, historical research of the photographs of LA, what astounded me were the number of oil derricks that this was an oil town. And there's a great photo of Venice Beach and behind it is literally a forest. So you had to know that there is an immense amount of wealth in the city. But again, the worst year of the Depression. So you have so much poverty at the same time. And so that was a very interesting place to start because as we know, justice is not equal to those who have and those who have not. And how do you then look at that through the lens of 1933 and through the lens 
terms of Perry Mason, once we sort of had that idea, then it became, well, what else is going on in the city that really isn't talked about? So that led us down the road of the Mexican community and the forced deportations. And it all, again, resonated with today, but made for really compelling storytelling. Yes. Speaking of some of the have-nots, you center around these brothers, Rafael and Mateo, who they're treated as though they're immigrants, but in fact, their home was taken from them. It's really quite complicated. So in their minds, they want to take back what was already theirs. Right. In this era, there was this movement afoot to rid the city and rid the country of the Mexican community. And what we see in the 30s is really this forced deportation. I think they called it even repatriation. It was taking not only people who were born in Mexico and came across the border and settled, but people who were born in this country. And even if they didn't speak a word of Spanish, they didn't care, send them away because it was someone to blame. It was taking away jobs. And this was what they felt was the answer, which we see a lot in, again, the politics of today. And to us, it was just very interesting that this is an ongoing dilemma problem for this community, not only as we see in the 30s, but we're hinting at what happened in Chavez Ravine coming up and forced out of your homes. And what happens when you're just backed into a corner over and over and over again? Where do you take those feelings of anger and hurt and pain? And what do you do with it? Exactly. And speaking about there's many different marginalized communities. There's, of course, the African-American community in the story. There's homosexual and lesbian communities who it's okay to say that Della Street in the original, she wasn't. But Raymond Burr, the original actor, of course, famously was a significant actor who was homosexual. So going into a little bit of that in the marginalized communities. Well, again, it's like you're looking at a city of incredible wealth and power, but amongst a very small group. This is a city of extremely powerful older white men. And I think that they are desperate to always hold on to that power as much as possible. So they will marginalize whoever needs to be marginalized. Now, if we're just looking at the role of women in this time, women still were very much in the home. 3% of women in the entire country were attorneys. So I always feel that with any marginalized community, it's all based on fear and threat. And what happens if something you've established, all of a sudden this woman can come in and do it, but also the fear of the queer community that I think people in general are so scared of other. And I think that that's, to me, a really interesting place to put people. And I think why people get marginalized, obviously the African-American community, this might seem like a little bit of a tangent, but what I find so interesting, especially about Los Angeles, and that is an interesting way that shows how these communities were marginalized. If you look at maps of the city back in this era, and if you were able to take a photograph, you would see where they planted trees and where they didn't plant trees. All the wealthy communities had an abundance of trees, abundance of shade to keep their giant homes and streets cool. As you go further south into the South Central and into those areas, there's almost no trees. And that is because they didn't feel they deserved them, that it wasn't important. They don't need to live in a park atmosphere. They're on their own. And I think that that to me is something that's not really talked about, but I thought was important to think about. No, it's so interesting that historically, because we also have an environmental podcast, One Planet, 
And so we've had a lot of interviews with environmentalists and conservationists. And so now it's being righted, but historically the environmental and conservation movements have been seen in America and were dominated by, it was like white centric. And mm -hmm. so the privilege of space and all this. And it's interesting because I had as a tangent, some conversations about the zoning and all this stuff. It's political, it's on racial lines. And that with gentrification, the planting of trees is a sign that your neighborhood is becoming gentrified and that they were seeing children's reaction to this and that they would have panic attacks, PTSD, when they saw trees being planted because it's like, we might have to leave our home now. Right. So That's a very interesting point. So I feel a lot for all the different marginalized voices. It's just nice to see their stories and the complications and nuance. And I feel a lot for Rafael and Mateo, who it's crimes of circumstance. And mm -hmm. I'm not giving away too much into the ending, but the justice at the end, it's not complete justice. It makes you reflect on the people who decide we're going to go to war, the presidents or the senators or the military industrial complex, but they're fought by the poor and the ordinary people. So they get a kind of justice, but the crimes were set in motion by others who kind of evade that. I think we're at this point in the season, we're at the halfway point. So what we know is that they pulled the trigger. But again, what we're going to learn in the second half is really what brought about that desperate act and that desperate choice. And it goes to directly what you're saying is that the circumstances of their lives, it's not black and white. It isn't just, oh, they're poor, so they commit crime. They're Mexican, they commit crime. There's no assumption here. It is a very complicated, nuanced life that is fraught with trauma after trauma after trauma. And I think that that, to me, is something that Perry can relate to in the sense of you brought up war. Here's a man in first season we see is extremely traumatized by the war and by what he felt he needed to do. And I think that that helps him have empathy for Mateo and Raphael. I mean, they come from extremely different worlds, but the circumstances and the desperation are, I think, something that they can share. Even though Perry's might have been more in the moment when he decided in the war that he needed to put these guys out of their misery. But I think that those feelings of feeling I have to do what I feel in my heart is right in the moment. I mean, I think that that's why one of the reasons that these guys felt they could shoot this man, because they felt well, this man is part of the bigger problem. Yeah, there's a line from Ledico in whatever makes the killer smile makes the soldier cry. And so they're remorseless characters within the show. And Perry's, which we should just say, the subtle performance of Matthew Reese throughout, it blends so beautifully. I mean, sometimes I wanted him to come out more, but I think mm -hmm. that that was the slow burn that kept us watching to the right. next episode. I call it the percolating trauma inside him. Yeah, go into that because it's so subtle, but we sense what he's going through. Right. And I I think that it's a combination of things with him. Again, it's holding on to this trauma that happened a dozen years ago in the war, that this is not something that he has really dealt with. And I think you can't take that lightly. It doesn't go away with time. It doesn't heal. It's still inside you and it's still informing who you are. And I think that was important in coming into this season too, because here is a man who's now thrust into this whole other battle. He's now an attorney. And how does he put lives 
lives in his hands. So he's gone through this in season one, and now we're coming into season two, knowing that he's haunted by the fact that he thought he saved somebody. He put Emily Dodson's life in his hand only to have her commit suicide. So now he's wrestling deeply with the flaws in himself and his character that these soldiers put their lives in his hands in the war. Emily Dodson put her life in his hands in the trial. And now he's going to take on these two boys who could swing on a noose. Does he want that? Does he have enough inside him? And that's why we play with the imposter syndrome, because he doesn't know if this is who he really is. And does he still have that fight inside him? And so I think that's the sort of push-pull, I think, that you're alluding to inside, and that he's trying to hold it in and trying to hold it all together. And we do see those moments when he can't hold it back, when he punches the guy in the face in episode four, when he steals the horse. These are things that he needs to release that valve because it's so much he's trying to hold on to to get to the result that he wants to win the fight because he hasn't fully won a fight yet. And that's hard. It's a great burden, the burden of caring. I mean, as much as you're disillusioned, but then still caring. So as he tried in the beginning of this season two to leave criminal cases behind, something safer, something that will pay the bills. And that didn't work because I think he's really someone who likes the high stakes and important things and important battles. And it's a great struggle, I think, for people who care. I've had a lot of conversations with lifelong activists, and I'm amazed that some of them can still have so much optimism. And another thing that this show makes us think about is how far we've come in some ways, but how, gosh, this stuff is repeating. This is cyclical. It's almost 100 years ago now, but still. So how do you retain that? And that's something that plays out very well with Matthew Rees acting. Well, it's interesting. I remember being on set one day with Matthew when we were just having this discussion about his character and where do we want him to be actually at the end? And again, it's not giving anything away. This is when all the Roe v. Wade stuff was going on. And it's this idea that you fight for something and then this decision comes down and you feel a sense of defeat and you feel like, well, there's nothing we can do. But at the same time, you still have to fight. You still have to get up because as we said, when you fight, you still have hope. And that's the most important important thing. And I think that inside Perry, that's what's always going to keep him going. As cynical and pessimistic as he seems to be in the world that he's existing in, there has to be that pilot light of hope at all times. Otherwise, why would he do this? Why would he defend these boys? Why would he take on X, Y, or Z cases down the road? Because there is always going to be a part of him and a part of all of us that has to hope that as bad as when we scroll through the New York Times or whatever, in the morning and just we do our doom scrolls and go, uh, uh, uh. But there's a thing that keeps us going, whether it's on the grander scale of activism or just on the small scale of trying to raise your children in the best light of what's going on. And I think that that's both with Perry. We're seeing it both on the grand scale, but also, again, on the smaller scale with someone trying to be a good father. Yeah, there is this tone of goodness through the different characters and what they struggle with. They have something that they're aiming towards. And that's very nice even with all the corruption and everything. And I think that I want to address the beautiful cinematography and the production design and the costume. You've come in at season two, which is an interesting thing. I'd like to discuss, you know, some of those conversations you had around the table and with your whole creative Mm -hmm. team. Because, you know, coming into a project where you see that it's been set up, but then you're adding to it, you're harmonizing with it. How did that work? I think it's interesting because then you can be an outsider and an insider too. 
Exactly. You know, I think the way I like to describe it is it's like somebody saying you're going to take control of an aircraft carrier. It's extremely exhilarating, but it is so immensely intimidating at the same time. The stage or the table, I should say, was so beautifully set by Ron Fitzgerald, Roland Jones, who created this version and Team Downey. And so coming in, our early conversations were really about, well, how do we just take what's established, but expand on it? What always fascinates me is that LA is such an expansive city with so many different communities, so many different areas, so many different ideas. And how do we showcase that and showcase it also through these characters? So season one, and I mean this in the best possible way, it felt very insular. It felt very gritty, darker, downtown. And so we wanted to let a little more light in with this season. And again, see more of what LA was growing from. That LA, yes, it started downtown, but it was constantly expanding. I think in 1900, there were 100,000 people. And then by 1933, there was a million plus, two million people. I don't even know the number, but it was more than a million. So it was just growing and growing and growing. So to us, that was the first place we started. And then this notion of, well, Harry is always throughout the books, the shows, he's defended the innocent. What happens when he defends the guilty? What does that look like for Perry? And I think that that was a really interesting sort of kernel for us to play with and build the show around. Yeah. It's true. I don't know the percentage. How often does it work out that you have like an innocent client? And in this case, it's kind of guilty, but innocent. You know, the people mm -hmm. set it in motion. You know, there was a, a distributed guilt and you can really understand from their point of view. So it's a difficult because I think that the Perry character has a kind of pure sense of justice. He's idealistic. I mean, he understands the situation, but there's a lot of other people. Even the district attorney is talking about the illusion of justice and that rankers Perry. I don't think that he got into it with that picture in his mind. No, not at all. I think that he definitely lives in the gray. He definitely doesn't see the world as black and white. I think he's smart enough to understand that. But he also feels that we are humans and that the law is the law and it should apply equally to all of us and that we all are granted that right to live a good life. And I think that that's probably the most important thing for him. And so I don't think that he can sit on this idea that justice is only for the ones who can pay for it. Here's a man who comes from a family of dairy farmers who struggled and struggled to keep this thing afloat. And on our minds, their land was probably bought up by all the guys in the early 1900s who were really buying all the land for all the water rights in LA. And so he understands what that struggle is. And that struggle goes beyond race and religion, but really it can break you. And I think that he holds on to that. That's right. That's what you're saying. That That's why he has sympathy for the brothers, I think. Their situations aren't really that different. You know, the exterior, they might be a bit different, but in many ways, they're similar. Absolutely. I mean, here are two families that had the hope of having family farms and passing that on to their children and creating a good life in this new land. But like always, people will come in and they will exploit it and rob it for everything they can, feeling justified because, again, they have the money which gives them the power. And Della Street, now there's a different, again, a different view on Della Street that we might have seen from the original Perry Mason, who was a kind of capable, his girl Friday, but I didn't see her as having ambitions to be a lawyer. Tell us about the complexities of Della. Again, Ron and Roland and Team Downey, this was a sort of a thing that they came up with, but I think what we wanted to explore in season two was really kind of dig more into this idea of number one, what 
what is it to be a woman with ambition in this era? 3% of women were attorneys in the entire nation in 1933. So that alone is an uphill battle. And then when you add the complication of being queer in this time and that there are laws against it, that you have to make sure every step you take is so calculated and so careful that you don't slip up. And what we really liked about exploring in this season is twofold in her personal and her professional life in the sense that in her personal life, in the first season, she's in this very chaste relationship with Hazel, and it's very much kept behind closed doors. They never go anywhere. It's all their scenes basically take place in the boarding house, and most of them in a locked bedroom. Here, she's really in love for the first time and meeting someone that is her equal, but is someone who can show her that there is a world that she can exist in. But it's scary. It's a very scary place for her to be. And as exhilarating as it is, and it's still, it's a risk. So finding that balance for her was really important. And also on the professional level with trying to make it again in this world that is dominated by white men and finding a mentor in Camilla Nygaard, one of the few women who is actually based on a real woman of the time. She was actually a woman. Emma Summers started as a piano teacher and bought oil wells and became a very wealthy woman because of it. To see that that brass ring is possible, but you've got to play the game just right, I think is very key that helps to open up this character throughout the season. Yeah, it's so interesting and kind of then heartbreaking because there's a complexity of that character who is not entirely a role model, let's say. It just has this, it doesn't always have to be the case, but often those who are victimized then become victimizers. And so that's hard when one has to cut one's bridges. So I wanted to ask about the complexities of some of the character dynamics in the show, because there are clearly quite a few different character dynamics in the ways that each character interacts with each other, particularly in the way that Perry interacts with some of his clients and particularly the guilty ones. What kind of dynamics did you set out to create through the show and how did you go about creating more well-rounded characters? Well, I think to me, that's the most important thing in any character is three-dimensionality. You know, you need everything out there in order to write for them, in order to be able to tell a story. They have to drive the plot. The plot can't drive them. And so the only way is that we have to see all their flaws. We have to see their weaknesses as well as their strengths. But when you expose their flaws, that's going to cause disagreement amongst the characters, amongst our three core. And that's what we want. These aren't the super friends. These are three people who come from three different communities. And so they're going to come to it with very different viewpoints. And making that as authentic as possible was very key. Not only did we really look at what was set up in season one, but we had long conversations with Matthew Reese, with Chris Chalk, and with Juliet Rylance about who they saw as their characters because they lived with them for an entire season. And to know what they were trying to embody and play definitely helped inform how we wrote them going forward. Were there any specific rules that you said these characters cannot go in this particular direction? They have to find their way here. I think it was just looking at what was set up and how can we expand on that? What can we take from what was established and explore it further? I think it was key to keep pushing the characters because we didn't want the characters just to be stuck in the same place. That'll get sort of old and tired. So so 
I think that what this case does is it brings out these other things from them. And that only happens because of the establishment of who they are first. So knowing who they are and then figuring out the case, that makes us say, how would this person react? And as long as it feels organic, then that's by far the most important. Nothing can feel manufactured in it. It had to feel like we understood why they made this decision. And considering all of the past trauma that Perry Mason is going through, it was nice to see a little bit of sweetness in the character played by Catherine Waterston. Ginny's character is a school teacher who seems to know how to do everything from riding horses and having a great empathetic spirit. So it's nice to see him come out of the past and look yeah. forward to things. Yeah, well, the line she says as they approach the edge of the hill that they're riding the horses on, where she says, nobody tells you what was, only what can be. And I think it's for him to hear that and look out at this city through a different lens, that he isn't just stuck in the street with the giant buildings around him, claustrophobic, boxed in. Here's the expansiveness of what this can be. And it's not just this very myopic or small view. It's expansive. And what I love about that shot, too, is when we see a side shot of that, it's subtle, but what you see is the Griffith Observatory being built. And again, here is this idea of anything is possible and we're expanding. We're not only expanding the city, but we're expanding into a thing that's going to look up into the heavens and there is no limit. And I think that Ginny brings that sort of spirit to a man who seems like he was just for so long stuck on one level and now is giving him that sense of there's more possibility. Yeah, it's nice to see that. And what did you bring to Perry Mason? I know you've done a period drama before. It's quite different though. So yeah. I'd like to see that you experiment. <laughs> Tell us about some of that. What were you able to draw from that and add it to the Perry Mason repertoire? Well, you're referring to The Nick, which was yeah, a medical drama set in New York City in 1900. And I think what we really learned from doing that show was the drive of your character. And really, it was such a lesson for us. And as interesting as the period is and all of that, icing on the cake, that's all it is. Because at the end of the day, you better care about your main character and that they have to lead this journey. And so if you have somebody set up so well, like, you know, Zachary was the main Dr. Clive Owen character who was so flawed and up against so much, or the character of Algernon Edwards played by Andre Holland, who was the black surgeon who was so gifted yet up against everything trying to bring him down, it becomes great drama and compelling. And the other thing I would say is, what was so fun about The Nick, and Steven Soderbergh, who directed all the episodes, said this. What's so fun to watch is someone who's an expert at something doing it expertly. And watching Thackeray in that operating theater was just amazing. It was fun. It was theater. And so here you have another theater. You have the theater of the courtroom. And to see in this season, especially as you get into the second half of the season and you really see Perry in this case, fighting it out in the courtroom, you're seeing him and Della really show why they're so good at what they do. And I think it's always fun to see that in your characters. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's not just window dressing or period. You have these really deep characters. And it actually makes me think now that Matthew Reese and also Clive Owens, they're completely different actors. I love them both. Anything they're in, I always want to see it. But they know how to play silences so well. And they have mm -hmm. this wry wit. They don't even have to say anything. <laughs> You're just like in their head. So I love that. That makes them very watchable. They're so 
much else going on behind the scenes, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the camera is picking up these small cues from both of them. And I think that's just talks to the talent of both those men. That they can go under the words and find the deeper meaning and be able to express it with almost not expressing it. And I think that's what I am so humbled by is the ability of all these actors that we worked with to really breathe life into the words. And in a way that when I write it, I picture it in my head, I see it, I hear it, but it's never that once it's performed. And again, I attribute that to the acting and to the way the camera is picking them up as well. Yeah. The lighting and the setting in Perry Mason, it's definitely in Los Angeles that I actually would like to go back there. Right, 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 right. It's beautiful. The Prussian era, here I come. Speaking of, you mentioned the Hope Davis's character, that Camille Anaika and how that was based loosely, it must be said, off a real character. Are there some other like Easter eggs either in the settings or are there other nods? Are there Easter eggs in the setting that we should be looking out for? Yeah, I mean, with all our research, it always sort of stuff bleeds over. I mean, Brooks McCutcheon is based on Ned Doheny. And Ned was the scion of Ed Doheny, who was the oil man and one of the wealthiest men in Los Angeles. And he was murdered. The circumstances are very different, but that idea of this prince of the city was very, very interesting. And a little bit of a ne'er-do-well, like we've set up for Brooks. I think that the Brooks's stadium, that's a nod to Chavez Ravine and what is coming down the pike. The thing about Brooks is that he was just ahead of his time when he's talking about bringing baseball. But that is something that we looked into and thought was really, really interesting. It's coming up in episode five. The club that Anita and Della go to is based on a real club. There were a handful of them. They were called pansy clubs in this era that were sort of speakeasy-ish feel. So that was based on the research. I would just say in general, all the great locations that we were in that we used are all sort of in their own way a nod to the incredible look and architecture of LA. And the one thing I will add too is that we wanted this sense of light in this season because there's a feel in LA of the light in Los Angeles is almost different than other places. It's hard to explain. It's like you have to be here to understand what it's like on those sunny days to drive down these streets that we were trying to capture. And so these shafts of light that we're seeing coming in through the windows might be a bit exaggerated, but it's that idea, it's that glow, it's that angelic feel that exists along with playing into the shadows. I mean, that's the great thing about LA and about noir. And it's trying Trying to marry those two ideas in here, the light and the dark. Exactly. This is like Humphrey Bogart in color. This is like the, all those Maltese Falcon in color. I mean, of course, it's like Perry Mason in color, but it's just so nice. And I think you can tell me why you and your team chose that particular era, but it makes me think about, oh, yeah, well, because a lot of what the representations on screen at that time, I guess that was a Hayes Code period. So it's nice because then we, there was one story. So in a way, it's not been as documented because they were definitely right. sent. <laughs> Answering a lot. Oh, yeah. I think the codes came in around 1933, 34. I believe that's when it, when, the, when, yeah, because I mean, the writers and I actually, we did watch a tremendous amount, not only of the noir films, but of the pre code films, which sort of helped us actually inform characters like Anita's based on a real character. I should say that too. And Anita's based on Anita Luce. Now, we don't know if Anita Luce was actually queer, but we do know that she was one of the most successful screenwriters of her era. And she wrote a tremendous amount during the pre code days. 
Oh, yes. Yeah, there's so, it's so fascinating. Just to look back, and again, this thing about, you know, history repeating itself. So it must make you, as well as reflect on the past, reflect on our current justice system, you know, the imbalance of power. I mean, how are you, as much as you're looking back, looking to how there could be echoes and relevant questions about our current systems? Well, it is the unfortunate reality that humanity doesn't change, you know, and I think that it's easy to see the parallels, unfortunately, to what life was like back then, to what life is like now. I think that to our benefit for the show, it's like people can feel that they're watching something that is almost 100 years ago, but at the same time, they can not only relate to the characters, but to the situation. They can say, like, what's different? And that's what I really like about a good show is that it not only entertains, but that you will walk away and then you're sitting there and you're thinking about this and then you're thinking about it again. And that, to me, is the sign of something that works on many levels. Indeed. And it makes me reflect on, like, how can we improve upon these systems? I mean, because we just recently had a conversation about incarceration, and apparently I hadn't realized that there's... Over 50% of American families are in some way impacted by incarceration, which is just crazy just to think about that. That's so there's something broken. Yes, for sure. For sure. And I think that, you know, it's not to get on my soapbox, but, you know, when we look at the current political climate, we look at what's happening in places like Florida, we look at the way they're trying to erase history, to whitewash history, I think is such a dangerous precedent because we can only learn from our past. We can learn from our mistakes. We can learn from what happened. If we don't tell the truth, where does that leave us? If we can cherry pick what's important to know and not know and by a, an elite few, well, how different are those elite few from the elite few from a hundred years ago who were cherry picking what was important to know? We have to learn from our past. It's the only way to have a future. And I think that to me is essential. And as the father of a 12-year-old, that's a concerning issue. Like, how can we not tell him the truth of who we are, what this country was founded on? And so that to me is something that without pounding it over your head when you're watching a television show, that you hope resonates a bit. Exactly. It puts forward situations and questions in a very subtle way. And so on about learning from our past, I mean, who have been important teachers for you, both within the arts and maybe made you want to become a writer or involved in the arts, but also on this civic activism, social awareness, this is obviously very important to you. You know, I think the best example for me were my parents, for sure. You know, I think there are certain things that they instilled in me from a young age that I carry with me as, as a writer and as a grown man. I think there's a sense of humility, a sense of patience, and a sense of humor. You know, I think those three things are so important. I think that humility, number one, that in all our situations and looking at everyone and having the patience to listen to who they are and what they are and what their circumstances are, and then to not take yourself too seriously, that you have to give yourself a chance to breathe. And all of that sort of helped inform and form the person that I feel I am today. And hopefully that I am now instilling on my own son. And I think that without my parents, you know, they weren't overly political, but 
I feel that by instilling this in us, it helped me want to explore these ideas on a sort of a bigger, bigger scale. And in a way that that felt right for me. I'm not a person who is a real activist in terms of being out front of something. I'm using the power that I know I have, and that's through writing. And I feel that I get the most fulfillment and can say the most with it. And again, that comes from the openness of my parents. And finally, what for you is the importance of the arts and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Here's here's what I could say. Storytelling is probably one of our oldest art forms, and it has helped us, again, in so many ways. It has helped us understand who we are as people, what our emotions are, and it makes us understand, again, our history and how we are trying to evolve from that. And we can't silence the arts. We can't silence those voices because if we do, we lose something that is so crucial to who we are just as human beings. We want to tell stories. We want to express in not just hard news ways, but in other ways for people to connect to who may not have a necessary connection to just a news story. And just personally, in terms of of the arts that really helped me as a writer, and it has nothing to do with actual writing. When I was in college, I took a drawing class and I can't access that side of my brain. I mean, I can doodle, but I cannot draw. And then one day the teacher wanted us to do negative space drawings. And I said, what is that? And they explained that it's looking at what's around the object and not the object. And it clicked and it made me look at things from a whole different perspective. And you know what? I was, that was where I was most successful. And so for me to say, there's an infinite number of ways to look at something and the infinite number of ways to tell a story that you never run out of ideas, that you can always find another road, another way to look at something was probably one of the key elements to my career. Oh, that's so interesting because POV, especially in what you do, is so important. There's not just the character. It's all these POVs. So thank you, Michael Begler, for unfolding these nuanced dramas that help us understand our history, ask important questions about justice, incarceration, racial equity, and inviting us into your visual world so that we can revisit the America of a century ago, seeing how far we've come and how far we've yet to go. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And I'm very flattered that you asked me to be on. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Jamie Lammers with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews produced on this episode was Jamie Lammers. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at Thanks for listening.